Lord, I thank you for our time together. I thank you that you allow us to gather in your presence. Lord, I pray that as we're here together that you would move and continue to move as we've already seen you doing. That the words that I speak would be the words that you would have me say. And that you'd prepare our hearts. In your name, amen. So we're on a mini-series. This is the third of the threes. We're doing the Mountain of the Lord. So this is the uh, third uh, third of the series on the Mountain of the Lord. So just a couple review for us. The story of the Bible is about the joining of heaven and earth. God's presence is often found on mountaintops, but it's also found in the temple. Um, and so we specifically looked at the, uh, the mountaintops and, and looked at that and, well, why, why should we find God's presence on the mountains? And we looked at the fact that the first mountain we run across is Eden, um, that mountain, the first mountain is Eden. And so as we, we, uh, we go into exile, we're constantly longing to return to that mountain. And so there's this echo as we go through scripture. Uh, mountains are bridges between heaven and earth, and as you ascend the mountain, you go back into God's presence. As you go away from and down the mountain, you go into exile. And so as we, every time we're brought into an exodus, we are brought up out of death. We are brought into life. We are brought to a mountain. And so we live and long for that as we see that going throughout, throughout the story of the Bible. We looked at the, the uh, I'm a couple slides past, I think, but so we're going to, as we're looking at that, we saw that it's strange because in the Exodus, we get to a mountain and here's God's presence, but then we leave it, or maybe we didn't, because the three-part structure of both Mount Sinai and Mount Eden point us to the fact that the temple is a mountain. And so as we move the tabernacle along, we've moved a portable mountain along with us. And as we moved east, into exile, as we saw in Genesis 2 and into 3, that as we moved into exile, in the same way as we move towards God's presence, we move west, up and into his presence. And so as we take the mountain with us, we don't just leave it behind. We looked at the fact that Genesis 11, and we see the Tower of Babel, not just as something that's just a weird tower, but it's, it is an attempt to do what is the longing of Scripture, which is to return to the mountain but they do it on their own terms and not in God's way. And so God judged them for it. So that's sort of where we are. Uh, I thought we're going to do something slightly crazy here. We are going to do a sprint through Isaiah um, and looking at this theme of the mountain. Um, I've included all the verses, so if we feel like we just go really fast, they're there for you to go back to. Um, Short story is, is as Isaiah sees that Jerusalem is transformed from the unfaithful city to the mountain of the Lord by the end of the story. So Isaiah 1, we see, Jesus, or, um, we see Isaiah mountain, um, uh, announcing that Jerusalem and Judah have been unfaithful, that they've been the unfaithful city. And we're longing then for what's the next step? How is this going to be revi- um, addressed? And we come to Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So we have this tension that's created between Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2, which is the unfaithful city and this longing for the return to the mountain of the Lord. How is this going to play out? What will we see as we move forward? 
So we come to Isaiah 4, verses 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So here's this branch. Something about this branch is going to be significant as we come through the story. What are we going to do with this branch? And then we come to verse 5. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of flaming fire by night. And if we stop right there, we go, did we just hear the announcement that Jerusalem is going to become a temple? It's like God's presence no longer just located in one spot, but over the whole city. Wow. We get to Isaiah 6, and Isaiah comes, he, he sees himself in that holy of holies, and he's terrified. And then he's told to prophesy again what's going to happen. And so we see that Israel is going to be cut down. A stump is going to be created and burned from that. Like, that's what's going to be left. But the promise at the end of Isaiah 6 is there will be a holy seed that's going to set this right, that something's going to change in that. And so as we go on into Isaiah 8, verses 13 and 15. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the relationship of Israel seems to be this tension between either sanctuary, yes, the word that we've seen used for the tabernacle and temple throughout scripture, or the rock of stumbling, which will Jerusalem choose? Will they be the thing that finds God to be the sanctuary, to be transformed, to come into his presence, or to stumble and experience judgment? And so we come to Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so we're right there. We're going, okay, all right, there's, there's something about the restoration that's happening. The thing that was burnt down, the thing that was judged, we're going to see. And so we come to verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall, dwell, shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. We stop there and we go, wait a second. This is just describing amazing things, and it's only going to happen in one place? I guess I need to become a realtor for this mountain because it's going to be very expensive to live there. Or we recognize that what Isaiah is doing, what he's telling us is what scripture has always told us from the beginning, right? Is, is that Eden wasn't supposed to be limited to one specific area, but to be grown outwards beyond its borders to encompass all of creation. And so here, Isaiah is saying exactly the same thing. Don't you see? God is working through this branch that is coming up. He's going to expand. He's going to set things right through that branch. But let us not get confused and think that everything is just automatically hunky-dory. Isaiah 14, 
Here we're talking about the king of Babylon. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. So here is someone who rejects the right way to come back to the mountain. He will do it on his own terms. And God says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who try to ascend the mountain on their own terms will not find that mountain to be so friendly. Isaiah 25, 6 to 10. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. So again, we're going, oh, realtor, we need to, have, we need to be figuring out where this mountain is so that we can have some property on it. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe all tears away, tears from all faces. And so here we are again on this mountain, and God's swallowing up death. Because we recognize that as we come away from exile into a new exodus, up the mountain, we come into life and not into death. But what's interesting and said here is is that this will be for all peoples. This isn't for Israel. Just one specific group. It's for all people. All people are invited to come up the mountain. Isaiah 37, 23 and 24. This is talking about the king of Assyria again. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. So here's another person, another king trying to ascend on their own terms. By your servants, you have mocked at the Lord, and you have said, with my chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. And so again, God announces the reality. Uh Uh-uh. You're not ascending the mountain on your own terms. Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. And all of a sudden, that verse, doesn't it pop in a different way than just out of context where it's just one thing? All of a sudden, we see the mountains for what they are. There's an announcement of the true mountain, of return to that mountain. The good news isn't the good news that David's almost done with the sermon. That good news is about a kingdom. Anytime we hear that good news, that statement, it's not just generic good news. It is a kingdom good news. The king is coming to establish his throne on the mountain. Isaiah 52, 13 to 14. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which he has been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And so this servant, the reality of how this will happen is because the king, the servant, will sprinkle the nations. And no other way will you be able to ascend that mountain. 
not on your own terms. Isaiah 56, 6 to 7. And the foreigners who join themselves with the Lord to minister to God, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And so through what's happened, there are people who are ascending the mountain, but only in the right way. And, you know, we created this tension at the beginning between the unfaithful Jerusalem and the faithful Jerusalem. And we've seen then kings trying to ascend the mountain. But it's worse than that. Because now Jerusalem is no different than those kings. Isaiah 57, 4. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you have went up to sacrifice. Jerusalem is trying to do exactly the same thing. They see that because of who they are, they think they can ascend the mountain on their own. But that's not the way it works. Jerusalem can either be the unfaithful city or the faithful city. And so we come to Isaiah 57, 13. When you cry out, let your collections of idols deliver you. The wind will carry you them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. There is one way and only one way up the mountain. And it should be said, build up and build up and prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place. There is only one who is high and lifted up. All others seek to do so at their own peril. Isaiah 60, 17 to 19. This section, what it describes Jerusalem being built, and it says Jerusalem's going to be built with bronze, silver, gold, and iron. And if we just stop for a second and we say to ourselves, have I seen anything else built with bronze, silver, gold, and iron? Okay, yeah, right? So you see both Daniel's vision uh, and Daniel 2. We'll come back to that. Uh, Dan's, Dan's, uh, Dan's making connections. Um, and also, we see one other thing. The temple. The temple is built from those things. And we've had this, this sense that as we're going through, that the mountain's going to be built. Or, as we've said before, the temple is a mountain that they're going to be built, that this thing is going to be built. And so Jerusalem is being built, as we saw hinted at in Isaiah 4, that Jerusalem is becoming the temple. Isaiah 65 I will indeed repay into their laps both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So here we are. We're almost to the end of Isaiah, and it's still the same tension that we're experiencing all the way throughout. Jerusalem can be the faithful city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the transformed, fully restored, or they can't. 
I will bring forth from Jacob, from, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah possession, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Seven, verses 17 and 18 of Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. And so we go, so there's a new heavens and a new earth. And it continues in verse 24 and 25. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. We've heard that before. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not destroy, hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Because we have been longing for that restoration, that something new is being created. It is a setting right of what has been broken. And so as we come to the very end of Isaiah 66, verse 20. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on my horses and in my chariots, in litters and on mules, on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become the holy mountain. Says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings and a clean vessels to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And so we've come, sort of sprinted through Isaiah. We see this tension, but as we're standing here thinking about this, we have to recognize that if the trajectory is, is that Eden has been expanded, grown outwards, that the mountain is not somehow geographic limited to one spot, then we have to recognize that in the same way, Jerusalem, if it's being stated in that way, can't be geographically limited to one spot. If the world is supposed to be the holy mountain, but somehow Jerusalem all of a sudden is geographically limited to one singular spot, then again, Let's get into real estate. So as we read the whole story of Isaiah, as we put it in context of what's going on in the rest of the story of the Bible, we recognize that this is what's going on. And so we come back to Daniel 2, as Dan brought us to. And we see Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about an idol in some senses, what it seems to be, a statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and the stone that hits it, hits it in the feet. Stumbling stone, anyone? But that stone doesn't just become a stone, it grows and it becomes the holy mountain that encompasses the entire earth. And so as we're longing for return to Eden, we see God's promise in the prophets telling us that there is return imminent. There is restoration on the horizon. And so we've looked at the last couple weeks how Jesus is the true temple, how he is the true mountain, how in him ascending, he joins us to him so that we are seated in heavenly places. But we don't want to stop there. Yes, that's true. But we often stop at the cross and the resurrection and don't go to Pentecost for its significance and what it tells us, what it means. And so we come to Pentecost and we see the Spirit descend and divide into tongues. 
that caused them to speak in other tongues. And it's like Babel, but instead of creating disunity, it brings unity. Instead of a false mountain, it's a true mountain. It's forming a church, a people, a nation. Just like the, the fire that descended on the temple, so the Spirit now descends and fills the living temple. The stones, as Dan was so um, perfectly read for us this morning, he makes us into the temple and not a false mountain, but a true mountain. And so we are called to encompass and expand God's kingdom, his original vision from the beginning into all of creation. And we can do so because the spirit empowers us to do so. Because of what Jesus did, we are seated in heavenly places. Because of the spirit, we have the power to do so, to do that thing that we've been longing and called to do so from the very beginning. And so I'll close with a poem. Throughout the Bible's sacred score, Mount of Eden looms evermore. The garden's essence ever near, inviting hearts to persevere. Isaiah, seer of ancient days, beheld Jerusalem's wondrous phase. A city once consumed by strife, transformed to Eden, full of life. Christ the rock, our solid foundation, mountain of the Lord, eternal salvation. Redemption's cross on rugged height, illumined Eden's expected light. Pentecost, breath, a new creation, divine winds, whisper, restoration. Eden's glory reclaimed once more, paradise's essence, love's encore. Pentecost's embrace, Eden reborn, restoring paradise where hope is sworn. Though hidden from our mortal gaze, its presence in our hearts ablaze. Questions or comments? Okay. Lord, I thank you that through your work, you have restored us restored our relationship, brought us into your presence. That through your spirit, you empower us to do what our vocation has, vocation has always been, to grow and expand your rule and reign over all of creation. In your name, amen.